You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. On today's pod, we've got the second part of my interview with special guest Michael Cohen. Michael is a widely listened to podcaster and an author with one best-selling book, Disloyal, and another, Department of Injustice, on the way. Cohen is the disgraced ex-president Donald Trump's personal lawyer who turned whistleblower. And in February of 2019, he warned Congress and the world that his former boss would not relinquish the powers of the American presidency peacefully. Sadly, he was right. But it all came at the personal cost of a jail term when his boss walked free, followed by judicially recognized retribution against him by the Department of Justice at a political level, Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr. Cohen is suing in federal court today over the ordeal. His tale of targeting should concern every American concerned with the politicization of justice that took place under the last regime in the White House. As one of the few people to penetrate the cone of silence that enables the Trump crime family, he's in a unique position to shed a light on what happened behind closed doors, and nothing was off limits in this interview, including telling me more about his role in the Trump-Russia affair. Take a listen. Do you believe Trump has committed crimes that he hasn't been charged for yet? Well, there's a whole slew of tax uh, charges that we all knew about, which, to be honest with you, I think was the strongest of all of the cases against Trump would be the tax fraud, bank fraud, wire fraud, and all of the other various different charges that go with that, that Alan Bragg, our new district attorney elected to walk away from. I want to just draw the comparison between Donald Trump and another famous mobster, Al Capone. They couldn't get him on murder, right? Because he had no fingerprints. You're not going to find a recording that says, I want you to take out, you know, little PD, big PD, medium PD, repeat, orthopedy, any of the PDs. All right. Instead, he told his underboss to go tell one of the capos to go tell one of the soldiers, but his name never came up. They couldn't get him on racketeering or any of the other crimes that the FBI and law enforcement knew that Al Capone had been and was continuing to commit. So what did they do? They got him on tax evasion. And the point was, the American public doesn't give a shit what the charge against you is. They don't care what you ended up pleading guilty to. So long as that your hands are behind your back, you're in an orange jumpsuit, and you're locked away. That's what they want. Nobody's going to turn around and say, oh, I can't believe that they put him away for tax evasion, and they didn't get him for the January 6th insurrection. No one's going to cry over that spilled milk. That I promise you. And that's the mistake that Alvin Bragg made in allowing the tax case to disappear. Especially when you have two lawyers that had been working on this case for two years. Remember, guys like Carrie Dunn, who was general counsel to the DA's office, that man came up to see me in Otisville. I was seen by the DA's office three times while I was a federal prisoner. And Mark Pomerantz, I mean, you're talking about a guy who is a lawyer extraordinaire that deals specifically in RICO and these exact types of matters. These two legal giants turned around and told him, we have enough here for an indictment. Let's go. And what does, you know, Alvin Bragg, district attorney, do? Turns out, no, I don't think we're going to do this right now. Mr. Bragg. We have an impaneled grand jury, and if we don't use them in like another two weeks, we have to release them. No, 
that, that's it. Now the statute of limitations ran on that DA case. Who knows? Maybe they could figure out how to drag him back in since Cy Vance, and thank God for Cy Vance, filed indictments, which are ongoing right now, against both the Trump organization and the CFO, Alan Weisselberg. So who knows? Maybe through that, they'll be able to pull him back in. But that was the case to go for. And that was a terrible, terrible mistake that nobody really understands the reason why. And we've talked about this on your show, Mayakova, before, but you were prosecuted and convicted for acts Trump essentially directed. How, how does it make you feel that you were prosecuted, but Donald's still walking free? Well, I'm angered about that. But I want to be clear to your listeners. I do not want to see Donald, Allen, or anyone indicted and incarcerated simply because I dislike them, simply because I fundamentally disagree with almost everything that comes out of their mouths. I want to see them indicted and incarcerated for actual crimes that they committed that can be proven in a court of law. Not strong-armed like what the Southern District of New York did to me by threatening to indict my wife after 48 hours of first learning what my charges were, or they, you know, they were going to walk the two of us out of our home here in New York. And so I turned around. Listen, I'm married to this woman for 27 years. I love her more than I love myself. And there was no way in the world that I was going to allow this to happen. And I don't know what others would do. I suspect if you were in the position that I was in, that you would plead guilty as well. And part of my book that's coming out, the Department of Injustice, I talk about the case from inception to the unconstitutional remand of me back to Otisville, a time when I was supposed to be going to have an ankle monitor put on for the home confinement. Instead of the ankle monitor, they put me in shackles and handcuffs and send me back up to Otisville because they wanted to prevent me from my first book, which became a number one New York Times bestseller. That's disloyal. Trump didn't want it out there. The Southern District of New York does not have clean hands. Neither did Judge Pauly, neither did Bill Barr, who I do not give a pass to. And of course, the top dog there, Donald Trump. So I get angered when I see these people walking around, stuffing their faces with Marilardo burgers, and they're not held accountable to anything. You know, part in the book, I have this whole thing. Not only was I charged with five years of tax evasion, and not one element of tax evasion legitimately exists. I've never not paid taxes. In fact, there was an error. And the error, I brought a lawsuit uh, against my former accountant, a guy named Jeffrey Getzel, who was supposedly an expert in the area because I had a series of taxi medallions in New York and Chicago as investment. I was in that business from 1995 to 2002. And then that was it. You know, I got out of the business, continued with my law practice and building real estate. And instead, this guy ends up providing testimony to a grand jury. I brought a lawsuit. The judge ends up ruling into it a decision that makes no sense. It's not only is it against me, it's against public policy. But I suspect that they do not want, which is part of the book, they do not want anyone to be deposed, and they don't want to give me any discovery. I'm just going to make one more point on this. I filed a request under FOIA, the Freedom of Information, over 18 months ago regarding certain matters against the Department of Justice, law enforcement, and so on. I want these documents. I'm provided expedited service. It's granted to me by the judge, expedited service. 18 months later, I get nothing. And so I bring on this lawyer who specializes this. They come back and they say that there are no documents. 
I'm like, that's impossible because I have a document here, one that was signed by Ted Lieu and Hakeem Jeffries. That should be at least one. And all of the ancillary documents attached to it, I myself know that there are at least six. So we make them go back. And again, we file now a motion to force them to do it. It turns out there's 468,000 documents. Now, I'm not talking about zero to nine. I'm talking zero to 468,681, to be exact. And you sit there, you scratch your head. Now, all of a sudden, they tell you, because of COVID, because of shortage of people in the FOIA office, we're willing to provide you with 500 documents a month. Now, I don't want anybody to stop their cars or stop what they're doing. That's 90 years before I would get all the documents. So if you don't think that there's cover-ups going on here, you'd be sadly mistaken. And the Department of Injustice lays this all out, including names of individuals in Washington speaking with federal agents who on anonymity provided us with information and quotes and so on. It's really a very interesting book. And sadly, what it shows is that under somebody like Donald Trump who weaponizes the Justice Department using a willing and complicit animal like Bill Barr, if we don't get this back, if we don't get control over the Justice Department, our democracy is doomed. Real quick, I want to ask you briefly before we end about the deal to bring Miss Universe to Moscow back in 2013. I covered for MSNBC in 2016. You were there in Vegas to sign whatever quote-unquote deal. I don't even know if it was just a piece of paper or if it was actually a deal they signed. Can you relay your thoughts at the time of the closing of the deal of anything? You know, What can you share about that story and possibly the trip to Moscow afterwards? Is there anything we should know about that? Okay, so there were three people on the board uh, for Trump. You know, Remember, Trump owned 50% of the Miss Universe pageant, Miss Universe organization, or MUL as we used to call it. That was Donald, Alan Weisselberg, and myself, the guy he barely knew. Then there was NBC. They had their own. They had their own three people. And then there was the president of the company, Paula, uh, who is, of course, the seventh and deciding vote. When we were all in Las Vegas, it wasn't about the Miss Universe organization. All right. It was about the Miss USA pageant that was taking place in Vegas. However, one of the guests of that happened to be the Aguilaro family who owned the Crocus Center in Moscow, uh, right in uh, the center of Moscow. And the son happens to also be a renowned singer. He's really, he is a fantastic singer. And he was going to be performing. There was no deal that was signed that I'm aware of regarding the 2013 Miss Universe pageant being held in Moscow. In fact, we had a board meeting, the seven of us, where it was presented. It was either going to be Vietnam, China, Russia, England, there were a whole slew. But the Aguilarovs wanted it in Moscow. They paid more by a multiple than anyone, like three times, four times the amount than anybody else had ever paid to have the Miss Universe pageant there. It really was not the best thing for the pageant, to be honest, because of the time difference. Why would anybody in the United States watch the pageant when you already know when you wake up who's the winner? Right. So it wasn't the best thing for the pageant, but they made a lot of money off of it. I was not there in 2013 because my nephew, by coincidence, happened to be getting bar mitzvah in Florida. And so I went, of course, with my family to my nephew's bar mitzvah. That was the same weekend 
that everybody went to Moscow. So I've never been to Russia, just as I've never been to Prague. And the notion that these people kept coming out and saying, you went to Prague, you've been to Russia, it's not accurate. And again, this is all part of the Trump triple Ds, right? Deny, deflect, denigrate. This is all part of his his three Ds plan for hurting somebody else to protect himself. Short of that, you know, it was just a standard deal. There was nothing nefarious that went on in Las Vegas. And as I also testified before the House Oversight Committee, when Trump was in Moscow for that um, Miss Universe pageant in 2013, there's, of course, the stories about the infamous peak tape. And I'm telling you, to the best of my ability, I have tried to find out whether that tape actually exists, whether or not any of it is true. And so far, the answer is it is not. And I promise you, Scott, and I promise your listeners, and I promise the country, the world, and every single person out there, if I had that tape, if I had knowledge of where that tape was, I would own it, and it would be online today. I would not be holding that back. Do you think Trump's actions may have helped lead to, or his inaction helped lead to, Russia's war in Ukraine? It's almost like having a patient on an operating table and the patient dies or something happens to the patient. You say, well, couldn't the doctor have done more? Sure, Trump could have done more. Had he surrounded himself with better, smarter, more qualified people instead of sycophants? Maybe. Do I attribute the Ukraine issue to Donald? Absolutely not. This is not his war. Uh, let's not forget that this isn't the first time Russia has invaded Ukraine. It's also not the first time that Russia has invaded a foreign country. Remember when they rolled the tanks in through the country of Georgia, which is, you know, Gruznia. That's who Putin is. Should we have, as America, gone to war, you know, at that time with Russia? I don't know. You know, I'm not in a position to make that call. I'm certainly not the guy at the helm. I don't think if I was president, that I would be willing to sacrifice not just American lives, but you know our economy to fight somebody else's war. I am incredibly thankful to Joe Biden and to this Congress for the aid and assistance that they are giving to the Ukraine. You may know or you may not know this. My wife was born in Chernovtsi, which is in the Ukraine, uh, left you know as a child to come to America. There's still people who. Uh, in our family who have relatives that is still there. And so I would like to see this war end. I think it's a waste of life on both sides, Russian soldiers and, of course, the Ukrainian population. It's just life is too precious. You know, and I'm somebody who almost lost their life at the age of 39 to a health condition. And so I value life, you know, maybe a tad bit more than the average person. You know, when you meet your mortality, then you certainly have a better appreciation for what you have. And these young, energetic, handsome, beautiful-looking people are all being killed. Children, elderly, young. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a shame, and there's no reason for it. And I do wish that this would stop. So I do give Biden and this Congress a lot of credit for what they're doing to help. But I do not blame Donald Trump for the war. At the end of the day, yes, he tried to hold them hostage to open up an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. 
He's a dirtbag. That's just what a mob boss does. He was trying to extort them. But that did not give a pass to Vladimir Putin. Look, Vladimir Putin has no regard for Donald Trump. To Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump is what's referred to in uh, the intelligence community as a useful idiot. That's, that's what he is. He has no idea what the hell he's doing. He's erratic. He's a scaredy cat. They've done a deep dive psychological profile on him. They realize he has the intelligence of like maybe a four-year-old. And I'm sorry if I'm upsetting any of your four-year-old listeners by denigrating them. But that's, that's what they see him. They just saw him as a useful idiot. It's a guy who somehow managed to bullshit his way into the White House by being a fucking asshole to everybody, whether it was Ted Cruz on the line or Jeb Bush or you name it. He managed to make people laugh enough to believe in him and the lies, you know, about his wealth and what he was going to do for the country and so on. That's what he was to Russia. And I do not attribute this war to Donald. You know, we can't attribute everything to Donald. The fact that your next door neighbor's grass is dying from weeds and it's brown, it's not green. That's not Donald's fault. And while I say it sarcastically, he's not. And we should not want him to be responsible for every single thing that's happening, not just in this country, but in the world. We need to hold him accountable for his dirty deeds, for his illegal actions. And we need to hold him accountable today to ensure that not only he never runs again, which I told everybody, I do not believe and I'm willing to put money on it that he is not going to run for president again. But that the next Donald Trump, the Donald Trump 2.0, like Ron DeSantis, that we pull apart Trumpism, pull it out of the Republican Party. In that way, Republicans and Democrats, like they used to, can create bipartisan coalitions that benefit the country. Because that's something that's been lost now. What you need, what I need, what this country needs. That's not even a consideration to these folks. They lie to you when they're running, they get the vote, and then they're back off to taking care of themselves. We are a country of Republican, Democrats, Independents, Greens, this. It makes no difference what party you're affiliated to. We are all Americans. And what Trump has done is he has shown through vitriol and through his antics that this is a zero-sum game. For Republicans to win, Democrats have to lose. It's kind of like getting onto an airplane, being angry that they lost your bag and hoping the plane crashes. It's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, who wants this country to fall apart? Well, Republicans do, because Joe Biden is in the White House, and they want to take both the White House and, of course, the Senate. And so they're willing to burn the country down, forgetting the fact that you live in that country. So this is why we need to stop Trumpism. We need to get ourselves back on track as a country where we all care about each other, where regardless of Republican, Democrat, at the end of the day, you can disagree, but you can sit down and have a burger and a beer together. That's what we need to do. The new book is The Department of Injustice. When's it come out? And uh, can you give us a little teaser of it? So I'm expecting that the um, book will hit shelves, hopefully by the beginning of September, the latest. I'll give you a little part of the introduction. It's 2022, and the fetid stench of the Trump administration lingers on, even as the Manhattan district attorney backs out of charging him for the crimes we all know he committed. If we didn't get together and fix the problems of justice in this country, then we could be looking at the end of democracy. 
We should all be worried about our government. And if you're not, it might be time to seek professional help. So it is a forensic dissection of our entire law enforcement DOJ apparatus. And I use many things that happened to me in my case as examples to show you just how far this organization, through its corrupt head, Bill Barr, and of course, his corrupt head, Donald Trump, would go in order to subvert your rights, including a First Amendment constitutional right, which was why they ended up sending me back to prison. And then, of course, being released, thank God, to somebody like Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein, who also stated emphatically to the Southern District of New York's uh, prosecutorial team that this is the worst case of retaliation he's ever seen against a U.S. citizen who wanted to do nothing more than act upon his First Amendment constitutional rights. Michael Cohen. You've come a long way, my friend, and one of the few that's actually earned it. Cassidy Hutchinson said a lot, but when we really needed it, she's the closest thing that we'll see to a Michael Cohen at this point, but it still doesn't match what you brought to the table when you brought it, and I still appreciate that. So I I know that most of our listeners do as well. I hope that also people learned a lot about the truth behind Michael Cohen. Almost everything he said, I can fact check and attest that it's true in regards to him not being in Prague, in regards to his dealings, in regards to Donald's stuff in Russia and his non-involvement. These are things that we've already confirmed to be true. Let's not forget the Stormy Daniels when Michael Avenatti went out there claiming that I went out to Vegas or Nevada or wherever she was and threatened her in a parking lot. Not true. In fact, up until after my incarceration, as an example, I've never spoken to Stormy Daniels. I had never texted her, emailed her. I never communicated with her at all. Every communication dealing that I had, I did with her attorney, this uh, guy by the name of Keith Davidson out of Beverly Hills, California. Every single one. I never, well, and once to her um, manager, Gina Rodriguez. But I've never spoken to Stormy prior to my release the second time from Otisville. That's just another lie. But if I could just go one step further, also, as we discussed in the book, one of the charges that was levied against me was a campaign finance violation, not to Stormy Daniels, that I take ownership of, that I did do, but to Karen McDougal. I mean, this is what the book is about. It's going to blow your mind. That's how crazy the Southern District of New York prosecutors are, the Department of Justice, and so on. I never spoke to Karen McDougal. In fact, if you read and you Google it, there's so many um, papers and journalists that will tell you I paid off Karen McDougal 150000 on top of the one thirty that was paid to Stormy. That's not true. The $150,000 was paid by David Pecker, who is the head of the National Enquirer, who did it for Donald. All right. My relationship into this mess was simply to ensure that Donald was protected. And we were then going to, after David Pecker was going to potentially leave National Enquirer and join Time magazine, that we would be able to buy the life rights to the story, which never happened. And somehow David Pecker gets immunity to testify against me at a grand jury. <laughs> I came in post fact, they had already done the deal. So if that doesn't make you want to scratch your head, read the rest of the stuff, because each and every point is specifically identified and the counterpoint to what really happened 
is explained in detail in this book. Where can people follow you online? Where can they find your podcast? I am at Michael Cohen 212 on Twitter, the YouTube channel, along with the Midas Touch, where you can see some of my podcasts live. Then on top of that, I am on Instagram uh, and so on. So, you know, whatever anybody wants to follow me on, rest assured, it's all done with a lot of humor, but it is exceptionally insightful. And you get the fly on the wall type of stories that you all had the opportunity to hear from Cassidy and explanations behind why Donald is doing today what he's doing, because it's exactly what he used to do before. Michael Cohen, thank you for taking the time with me today. Scott, be well. Thanks again to Michael Cohen for taking the time to do such a long and in-depth interview with me. Thanks again to Grant Stern for being the best producer in the business. You can follow him at Grant Stern on Twitter. You can listen to more episodes of our podcast at DworkinReport.com. Thanks again for listening. Onward! Onward!